today's scripture reading is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So when I was a college pastor, I kind of got the itch to take a trip. And when you're a college pastor and you don't have much time off and you don't have much disposable income, you decide to take a mission trip. (laughs) So I was like, where should we go? And we decided it's hot. We want to go somewhere cool. Let's go to the mountains. So I'm looking through the um, denominational yearbook for a church that's in a mountain town. And I come across this great church that's in Colorado Springs. And I've never been to Colorado Springs before. Well, I hear it's beautiful, Colorado, mountains, Rocky Mountains. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be incredible. I tell all the kids about it. I'm like, we're caravanning up there in buses. And I call the church. We're going to do a little mission trip with them. And they've got this big fair that they're doing to equip the community. And so I'm just thrilled about this. And for weeks leading up to this trip, I'm like, all right, everybody, pack your gear. You got coats. I mean, boots. We're going to need it. We're going to be in the Rockies. It's going to be awesome. And make sure you're going to be warm. So we get out on the road and we're going up through New Mexico and we get up. And as you go into Colorado, you realize that you're not seeing very many mountains. And I'm looking at our, I think we printed out directions at this point. Remember when we used to do that? I think we had printed out directions. And I'm looking at like, we're getting pretty close and I'm not seeing any mountains. In fact, it's like 85 degrees. I'm like, you know what? These things must come at you really quick. So we get closer and closer and closer. And pretty soon we see the, we see the town. There's like one mountain next to us. It's hot. It's dry. Nobody needs a jacket. We're there the whole week and it's above 80 the whole time. It's hot. And what I didn't realize is Colorado Springs is close to the mountains, but it's not really a mountain town. And what had happened was I spent so much time in the preparation for that trip that I thought nothing about what it was going to be like when we actually got there. And we were not prepared for being there because we had been so jazzed about this idea of what it would be like that actually didn't match reality at all. And this morning I'm preaching on Jesus is going to return. And one of my contentions is we have spent so much time talking about how he's going to return that we don't think hardly at all about what it's going to be like when he does. 
You know, there's two kinds of people. When you say you're going to talk about the end times or eschatology or whatever you want to call it, there's two kinds of people. The first group of people is like they're getting out their charts and their timelines and they are ready for this. They've studied for this moment. They have binders for this and they're ready to look newspaper in one hand, Bible in the other. They're ready to tell you what's going to happen. And I love that. Okay, I'm a big I love to talk about that. I love to argue about it. I'm all about the charts and everything. But this is not that kind of sermon. And there's another group of people that when you talk about the end times, immediately I roll, shouldn't have come to church today. I don't want to hear about this. I don't ever think about it. And this is not quite the sermon that you probably think it is either. What this sermon is, is saying, what can we expect it to be like when Christ comes back? And the key to this is, and this is just important for reading your Bible in general, always let the clear texts interpret the unclear texts. So there are some unclear texts in the Bible. We don't know certain things exactly what that might mean, but this text is as clear as day. And so we're going to say, what does this say about what it's going to be like? And we're going to go with that. You know, the return of Christ is one of the most prominent, most historic beliefs of Christians. If you grew up in a creedal church or if you've ever been a place where you say the creeds in the Nicene Creed early, early in the church, they say, I look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. The Apostles' Creed says, Jesus ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And from there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. It's one of the most robust claims in the history of the church that Jesus is coming back and will be with him forever. But it's one of the most anemic doctrines in the American church. We do not spend the time we should on this doctrine. So what I want to do this morning is I want to take, like that Colorado trip, I want to say it's not just about the preparation, it's also about the arrival. So there are important things to say about how Jesus is going to come back. I'm not downplaying that at all. That is super important. But this morning, it's not just about how, it's about what. It's not just about what's going to happen when he returns. It's what life is going to be like afterwards. So I have five answers to the question. What is it going to be like when Jesus comes back? The first thing is, it's not just about our resurrection. It's about his resurrection. So look at what Paul does in this passage. He says, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. I don't want you to be ignorant about what happens when people fall asleep. What had happened in the church is this was one of Paul's first Greek churches. He comes here, plants the church. He's only there for about three weeks. The church takes off and then he is kicked out of town and he's forced to send messengers back and send letters back to find out what's going on. And what had happened is between the time Paul had been there and the time he hears about what's going on, some of the people in the church had died. Now, as you can imagine, in the three weeks or two and a half weeks that Paul was there, he didn't get to cover everything. He's given an overview. And so what happened was people started to wonder, well, if if Jesus is going to come back and these people have died, maybe they're going to miss it. Maybe they're going to miss it. Maybe you have to, you must be present to win. You know, it's kind of one of those, if you're alive, he comes, you see him. If you're dead, sorry, that's just, you missed out. And so they're thinking, what about our people that died who were waiting for Christ to come back? Now, the second thing is, they also thought that if the people who died rose, so they rise from the dead, they've already died, the people who are alive or not. If they do rise, maybe they're not going to get quite as good a share in the life to come as the people who are alive. 
So they've got all these questions and they send a messenger to Paul and they're asking him about this. And he says, okay, I don't, I don't want you to be uninformed about what's going on here when people fall asleep. And it's important that he uses the metaphor fall asleep. We'll come back to that. He says, I don't want you to grieve as other people who have no hope. Now look at what he says here. Now, since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, this is the fundamental thing that you've got to believe to be a Christian. Jesus lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he's coming back. Since we believe that, we also believe through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. We also believe that those who have fallen asleep will rise. For this we declare to you by word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of Christ will not precede those who have fallen asleep. So the people who have died are actually going to get to rise first. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of the archangel and the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. Christian religion is one that is unlike any other religion in the world in that we believe that when Jesus rose from the dead, the fundamental nature of the universe changed. Before Jesus, when you died, you stayed dead. Now, when you die, you rise. The universe is completely changed. What happened when Jesus rose from the dead is it says he is the first born from the dead, which means there are others, right? He is the first fruits of the new creation that comes in the resurrection of the dead. And that means that there are going to be other harvests to come. See, what we believe is that if you are in Christ, the things that happen to Christ are going to happen to you. Christ suffered in this world. You will suffer in this world. Christ died. Unless Jesus comes back, you will also die. But Christ rose from the dead. And so you too, if you are in him, will rise from the dead. That's what it means to be in him. The things that he does, the things that happen to him, happen to us because we're in him. He is... like a seed that went into the ground and it died and then it started to grow and produce fruit and you too, your life is like a seed that when you die, you will rise again as what you were always created to be. So Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. You don't just believe that Jesus died and rose from the dead. We actually believe that everybody who's in Christ rises from the dead. Now this is a continuation of a message that runs through all of scripture. Do you remember what happens in the very beginning? Adam and Eve are in the garden, and there are two trees in the garden. We think of the the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one that gets the most publicity. But then there's another tree, the tree of life. The tree of life is in the middle of the garden. And when they are removed from the garden, they are removed from the tree of life. And we don't hear about the tree of life for like 3,000 pages until you get to the very end. And what happens is Christ rises from the dead. He reopens access to God through his life. And in the new Jerusalem, the tree of life is back. Because what we believe is you were made not for death, for life. You are made to walk with God in such a way that you are nourished by the tree of life. And when Jesus reopened a way to God, one of the things that he did was bring us back to the tree of life. And if you compare these, you know, the tree of life in the Garden of Eden, we don't get much about, but we know it's just a tree. There's a bunch of trees in the garden. There's a tree of life. When you see it in the new Jerusalem in the book of Revelation, it is this monstrous tree 
tree. Okay, it is growing on both sides of the river, the waters of life. It has all these branches and roots and everything that it touches is growing. That's the timeline of history. God is growing up a people who will rise from the dead, who will become just like the tree of life, exactly what he created them to be. We believe in a religion of life. So it's not just about our resurrection. It's really about his resurrection. By believing in his resurrection, we believe that we too will rise from the dead. Secondly, it's not just what is what is eternal life? It's not just about the length of your life. It's about the quality of your life. Okay, we get jazzed about eternal life. That means we're going to live forever, forever with no end. But it's like, I don't want to do certain things forever. You know, I got to think about two experiences I had last week. On one of the days last week, I went to the dentist. And I don't want that to last forever. Okay, so it doesn't actually matter the time. And they were, they were great. It was short. But it's like it doesn't matter the time. It matters what is happening during that time that makes it good or bad. Because actually everyone who's ever been created is eternal. But some people have eternal life. And it's not just that it's forever life. It's the content of that life. So later after that, after I went to the dentist, which seemed like a short eternity, I went to dinner with Laura. And we went to this great little place in Tulsa. We had a date night. It was really fun. Now that could last forever because the content of it was great. The food was great. We were talking. It was awesome. And it was twice as long as the dentist, but seemed a fraction of the length. It's the content that matters. So all through the Bible, it's not just that our life is going to be forever. It's that it's going to be everlasting in the quality of the life that you're living. So the apostle John loves eternal life. I just found this out this week. I was doing a search about eternal life in the New Testament. John uses the phrase eternal life 25 times. That's more than the rest of the New Testament combined. I mean, he loves to talk about eternal life. And so to describe this, I'm just going to go through his gospel and tell you what he says about eternal life. What is eternity made of? What is the substance of our eternity? In John 3.16, he says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. We'll have everlasting life. The eternal life is the opposite of perishing. Right? It's, it, and that's not a temporal word. That is a destruction kind of word. So destruction versus construction. Eternal life is an ever-flowing, ever-building, growing kind of life. In John 6, 27, Jesus is talking to the people who have eaten the miracle where he, where he feeds the 5,000 with bread and fish. And they come back to me. He says, you're just coming to me because you want a free lunch. And he says, don't work for the bread that will feed you once and then perish. Come for the bread that endures for eternal life. Come for the bread that is eternal life. See, the comparison there is eternal life is like being so nourished, like having a meal that you eat that is so rich in what you need that you never have to eat Again, it's that kind of life. Later in John 10, he says, I am the good shepherd and I give my sheep eternal life and no one will ever be able to snatch them out of my hand. See, eternal life is something that can never, ever be taken. It is the highest, most secure thing you could ever experience. No one 
the full weight and authority and trust of Jesus and the Father himself, no one will ever be able to take your life away. Earlier in that chapter, he says, I've come to give abundant life. He says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come to give you life, that you may have life abundantly. This word abundant means overflowing, more than sufficient. So much life, you don't know what to do with it. The amount of life that you can't even contain in how you're living now is the abundant life. In John 17, Jesus is praying for us, for everyone who comes after him. And he says, God, this is eternal life to know you and the one that you sent. This is eternal life. Eternal life is relational. To know the one true God and the one he sent. That's eternal life. He's quoting or he's referencing Psalm 16, which says, in the presence of God, there is the fullness of life. It's relational. Eternal life is relational. And last, in 1 John chapter 5, he ends his letter this way. He says, we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. He is the true God and eternal life life. It's not about how long eternal life is. It is eternal in that it is unending, but it is the kind of eternity that is abounding and full and overflowing with vibrant life. Third thing, we're not just concerned about when it will happen, but what will happen. So the most prominent verse about the end times, and most of us could probably quote this out of its context is concerning the day and the hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Okay, this hasn't caught on as well as it probably should have. No one knows. Okay, this, is not, this has not been many people's life verse. Nobody knows the day or the hour. And Jesus tells these parables that basically say, you don't know when, so be ready. Be ready at all times. He tells these about these tenants who are working for a master, these people that have these lamps that they're supposed to keep oil in. He says, you don't know, so just be ready. And what people usually do with that then and now is, yeah, but can we talk about when? Can we talk about when it's going to be? I mean, this is in our nature. The one thing that we can't really know is the thing that we want to obsess over. It's like the one thing, if you tell kids, you cannot touch that. Of all the things, that's the thing that's going to end up getting broken. You know, there's a thing now called productive procrastination. Have you guys heard of this before? This is a legitimate technique if you read in business literature and productivity. It's when you have something you really don't want to do, so you do all kinds of other things so that you don't have to do that. It's like, well, okay, I've mowed the yard, cleaned the house, done my taxes. Also, I didn't have to make that phone call. You know, So there, this is a real thing that we have certain nodes in our consciousness that we either do or don't want to handle. And so we arrange everything around it. And I'm afraid that the node of our consciousness for the second coming is when. When's it going to be? Is it going to be during the sermon? Is it going to be tomorrow? Is it going to be a thousand years from now? And God's point all the time when he talks about the end times is don't ask when, ask what. What's it going to be like? What's going to happen when we are with him forever? And one of the things that's going to happen is judgment. So it's appointed for man to die one time and then comes judgment. Jesus is clear. When he comes again, it will be to judge. So when he comes down, he will judge the living and the dead. And 
All of us will have to give an account of what we have done. This is the simple truth. Jesus is going to come and you'll be accountable for everything that you have ever done. And everything you've done, sinfully, in your own righteousness, every single thing, every sin will have to be paid for. So his, his accounting is perfect. Every sin is accounted for somewhere. And it either has to be paid for by you or by Christ. That's it. Those are the only two options. So he's going to come back and he's going to judge everything we've done. And it's going to go in one of two columns. This one sticks with you or this one is paid for by Jesus. That's what happens when he comes is we are judged. We give an account. In fact, a lot of times we talk about the end times. We talk about doomsday, right? Doomsday. And the origin of the word doom is kind of interesting. So we think of doom as gloomy and as terrible, as something horrible happening to us. In fact, we have superheroes now called doom. It's like the end of the world. But the word doom actually in Old English doesn't mean something bad. It can be bad, but it depends on what your status is. A doom is something that's actually given to you. So the doomsday book in England where we get this phrase is an accounting of all the land in England. And what you do with a doom is you give it to someone. You can deem a doom. These are the same root word. So you deem someone what they deserve. So your doom is what you deserve. And at the judgment, he's coming to give everyone their doom. Is your doom to be with Christ? Or is your doom to be away from Christ? Doomsday is not about the event. It's where you find yourself, what side of Christ you find yourself on when the day comes. So Jesus says to his disciples, I'm going to come and judge the living and the dead. And your relationship with me has everything to do with whether that will be a good thing or a bad thing. But what we know is it's not just when, it's what. Judgment comes and then we will be with him. Number four, it's not just about what will be there but who will be there? It's not just about what will be there, but who will be there. This is a a provocative question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. So this is in John Piper's book, God is the Gospel. The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness, all the friends you've ever had on earth, all the food you've ever loved, all the leisure activities you've ever enjoyed, all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you've ever tasted, and no human conflict... Could you be satisfied if Christ were not there? If Christ were not there. This is why I say our doctrine of heaven is so anemic. Because we're settling for all of those things when actually the greatest thing that could ever happen to you is to be with Christ forever. That's the greatest satisfaction you could ever have is to be with him in his presence. And it's not that there won't be other things. It's just that we've been ranking them wrong. We're excited about all the physical things and all the wonderful, pleasurable things that we can see and do and be around. But actually, the central focus of heaven, the central focus of our life after death is being with God forever. When I first heard this quote, I was at Passion. And Francis Chan was preaching. He asked this question. And he went on to say, are you living your life now like you're going to enjoy heaven when it gets here? Because if heaven is all about being with God, you can actually do that now. You can do that now. And some of us are looking forward to heaven so much, but we don't actually like to spend time with God. It's like, you're not going to like it there. (laughs) That is the central point of it is you get to be with your creator forever. 
So our eternity is not just about a what, it's about a who. Who's going to be there? God is going to be there. And that's going to be our central focus forever. Look at what Paul says in verse 17. The Lord himself will come down with a trumpet and a voice of an archangel and the dead will rise. And then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. To meet the Lord in the air. Use this word meet when you have a dignitary coming. Right, so this is the word when somebody's coming over for dinner that's really important and you get everything just right and you're standing by the door waiting for them when they come in. This is the word you would use. We will greet the Lord in the air. The picture I always get is like a Downton Abbey when somebody is coming who's really famous. What do they do? They get everybody outside and they've all got their tuxes on and they're all standing just like this. Nobody talks and they show everybody is waiting for you to come. We will meet him in the air. We will be up in a greeting, welcoming party, bringing him down. The heavens come to the earth. It's what we've prayed in the Lord's Prayer. The new Jerusalem descends down and the earth is full of the glory of God and we are the welcoming party. So he says, we will greet him. We'll meet him there because we are so anticipating him to come. So your eternity is about Jesus. It's about being with him. Think about the thief on the cross. Do you remember this story? So you have the thief on the cross. And he doesn't trust in Christ, but he sees what's happening to Jesus. And the other thief is mocking him. And he says, you shouldn't really mock him. You know, we deserve this, but he doesn't. And Jesus looks over at him and he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you will be with me in paradise. And I would say that's the right order. With me in paradise. With me in paradise. Don't, not paradise and Christ can be there. With me in paradise. Number five. It's not just about what we're like now. It's what we'll be like then. So the Corinthians, you know, the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. They have all kinds of problems. And they're sending Paul this list of questions that they have. And one of the questions that they asked Paul in chapter 15, he says in verse 35, somebody will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? This is a good question. This is a great, what's the resurrection going to be like? What are we going to look like? What age are we going to be when we're raised? You know, what is our prime? And are we going to get to be that for eternity? Or are we raised in our old age? Are we raised as kids? I want to know what it's going to be like when we rise from the dead. And Paul answers this question. And he tells them in verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It is sown as a natural body, but it is raised as a spiritual body. And then look at verse 49. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. This is the difference between us now and what we will be. The difference between dust and heaven. Think about the gap between those two. We inherited the body of the man of dust, sinful Adam. But we will inherit the body of the man of heaven, Jesus Christ, who when he was raised from the dead was glorious and perfect. What it will be like to be there is to have a body that is totally equipped for the task we will have there. Now our bodies are are obsolete. Our bodies die. They decay because of sin. Every person in here's body will go downhill if you give it long enough. Every single person in here is destined to die. 
But the new body is destined for life. So it's like the first part of your life when you are constantly growing and getting bigger and stronger and smarter and everything seems to be going in this direction. And then at some point you hit the tipping point and you start to go the other direction. That change will never happen with your new body. It is a body that's made to increasingly grow to serve God forever. You know, we have what's called entropy here, which means things go from order to disorder. Things just naturally, you don't even have to do anything about it. Things just go into disarray. But in heaven, things will have the reverse quality. Things actually will go from disorder to order. Right? This is why I think there will never be a cold cup of coffee in heaven. Because you'll never lose that heat. It will just stay hot forever. In fact, it will get hotter and hotter as you go. And... We will be that same principle. We will be constantly renewed in such a way that we are always up to the task of what God has for us. See, some of us imagine that heaven's going to be really boring because we're sitting around on clouds or we're in a big choir, you know, that not everybody's singing just the right notes and we're trying to praise God all together. But the picture of heaven is a lot like earth if there were no sin. A lot like doing work that yielded fruit easily. A lot like if you were here and you were given a dominion and a kingdom to reign over in righteousness and justice and peace and fairness, that's what the Bible says we will be ready for. That's what your new body is going to be ready for in the new heavens and the new earth. So to close this fifth point, I want to read you this passage from the book of Revelation. And as we think about the hope that we have, I want you to put this as a picture in your mind. In Revelation chapter 7, John sees a great multitude that no one can number from every tribe, every nation, all the peoples and languages stood before the throne and before the Lamb. And they're wearing clothes that have been washed white with palm branches in their hands. This is like, this is Palm Sunday all over again. And they have palm branches in their hands and they're crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. And they fall on their faces before the throne saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. And one of the elders addressed me and says, Do you know who these people are? And he said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation." They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And they are before the throne of God, serving Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. They shall never hunger again. They will never thirst anymore. The sun will not strike them. There will be no scorching heat. For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And He will guide them to springs of living water. And He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's what it's like to be in the presence of God forever. So what does Paul say? Two things. I want you to know this so that you will be comforted. I want you to know this so you'll be comforted. In in 1 Thessalonians, two times he says, comfort each other with these words. Comfort each other with these words. See, we do grieve here on the earth. And this passage and this sermon is not to say don't grieve. If you're a Christian, don't grieve. This passage to say, if you're a Christian, don't grieve with no hope. Don't grieve with no hope. Because the moment that your eyes close here and they open with him, it will be so spectacularly different 
than the best day you experienced here. That it will make every single thing worth what it took to get there. So he says, I want you to comfort each other with these words. Those who have died, those who have fallen asleep, have not missed out. They've not missed out. I told you that it's really significant that he uses the word fall asleep here. And that's not just because there's the appearance of sleep. And it's not just because when you go to sleep at night and you wake up in the morning, you are physically enacting the resurrection. It's because, do you remember when Jesus goes and there's a little girl who's died and he says she's sleeping. And he goes in and people think he's crazy for saying this. And he goes in, he takes her hand, he lifts her up and he wakes her up. It's because it is as easy for God to wake up a sleeping person as it is to raise you from the dead. It is the thing for us. Death is the thing that we never get used to. But for him, it's as easy as shaking someone awake from a nap. That's our eternity. Rise from the dead and be with Christ forever. In the end of 1 Corinthians, after he's talked about their resurrected bodies, he tells them this. And this is where I'll end. If Andy, as Andy comes back up to worship, I want to leave us with these words. In the end of 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Therefore, beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is never in vain. Nothing you do will be wasted since you will be raised for eternity with Christ. Nothing you do here will be wasted because every piece of it in the scope of eternity will feed into the everlasting, abundant, overflowing life that you were made for. So take any risk. If God calls you, he sees it in the scope of eternity. Your life is to be poured out for him. Take any risk. Trust him with any call. Don't be uninformed. He is coming back. And when he does, you will be with him forever so we do grieve but we don't grieve without hope because we know that God has created you not for this life but to trust in him for the next life live your life like you're going to be there with him let me pray father thank you for making us in such a way that we look forward to being with you father the way you've created us is that We are made to be with you. And we have so many things to distract us. We have so many things that you've made that are awesome and pleasurable and wonderful. Remind us this morning that the highest purpose of our life is to be with you. To be in your presence. To be surrounded by you. Lord, I pray for the comfort this morning that only comes from knowing that you're going to wipe every tear away from our eyes. Father, I pray for those who are mourning this morning that you would put a safety net on their grief. That you would be there with them at the bottom. Or that you would remind them of these words. Comfort each other knowing that when you come again, we'll be with you forever. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.